You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome to the From the Shadows podcast. I am the producer, Jason Lewis. And so tonight, we visit some of the haunted places in the Ohio State Reformatory with tour guide Elena Ross. Be prepared to have your hair stand on end as her stories make you feel as if the spirits inhabiting this legendary location might just be sitting beside you listening to her tell the tales that happen within the walls of this beautifully spooky place. So let's not waste any more time as I turn you over to your host, the one and only Shane Grove. On uh, this episode of From the Shadows podcast, we'd like to uh, welcome Elena Ross, who is a tour guide at the Ohio State Reformatory in Mansfield, Ohio. Um, Many of you might know that are listening the uh, a little bit of the background of the Ohio State Reformatory simply because you've seen the movie The Shawshank Redemption, which was filmed back in uh, the early '90s in Mansfield and kind of kind of saved the prison, I think, from the from the wrecking ball. And uh, so we enjoy this day. Uh, they've done a lot of work to save save the prison and make it a tourist attraction and so elena um thank you for joining us today and uh kind of give us a little little uh tour of the prison as you would as if we were uh visiting give our give our listeners a little background on what you what you do and uh what you're telling the telling the guests that you lead through the prison sounds good well thank you for having me first of all it's always a pleasure to be on podcasts and videos and whatnot. Um, so I'm a tour guide at the Ohio State Reformatory. I am also the marketing intern under the associate director. So um, I run all the social media pages, uh, that sort of deal. But um, my favorite thing to be is a tour guide. So I work under the Mansfield Reformatory Preservation Society. We are a nonprofit historical society um, we gained control of the building in the early 2000s, and so ever since then we have been trying to preserve and renovate the entire prison. It's a little difficult to do so since we don't have any public funding. Um, the only money that we take in is from tours, events, uh, haunted house, <laughs> paranormal stuff, uh, but we put that directly back into the building. We opened our doors um, in 1896. Uh, we were a place for young first-time offenders between the ages of 15 and 35. And we were that place for young first-time offenders up until about 1960, 1970. And then we transitioned into being a full maximum security prison. We closed our doors de December 31st of 1990. And then we moved all of our inmates to directly behind us. There are two active facilities back there, uh, Ricky and Nancy. Now, my understanding, Elaine, is you have a family connection to the Ohio State Reformatory. You want to tell us about that? 
Yeah, so um, my great-great-grandfather, he was kicked out of the house when he was 18 years old um, in West Virginia, and he was looking for a job. And so he decided to move up to Ohio, and he had a position offered to him either at the big prison in Columbus, which was Ohio Penitentiary, or come up to the new prison, and that was OSR. So he came up, uh, got enough money in his pocket, brought his family up, and then um, my grandfa- my great-grandparents were born right across the street. Um, my Actually, my great-grandfather met my great-grandmother because he was stealing chickens from OSR's honors farm. <laughs> yeah. And so he, uh, the guard... Does that, did that count as the first date? Oh, yeah. <laughs> he took, he took off oh, yeah. Nothing says romance like prison, really. <laughs> well, okay. We won't touch that. This is a family. And then um, my my grandfather was captain of the guard. He, he kind of rose through the ranks. My grandmother was one of the first females employed. She uh, was raising four kids by herself, divorced her husband when divorce really wasn't a thing. She started out as a typist, moved up to being a secretary. Then she taught three levels of sex offender classes. Uh, since we didn't offer them, she was reading the handbook, realized it, and said, hey, I'll do it. <laughs> Uh, then she became a case manager, met my grandpa, rest is history. My dad was born across the street in uh, state housing. Uh, my dad was offered a opportunity to be a guard in the 1980s, but took a different path in life, and now he's back as another tour guide. I roped him in. <laughs> so your family grew up in the shadows, shall uh, we say, uh, of the reformatory. Wah, wah, wah. Yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> so... So walk us through what the what the prison looks like. For for a lot of people, they've probably seen the outside of it or seen a picture of it in books or in movies and things like that. But but tell us about how it's how it's organized, how it's arranged, how many people were uh, were there incarcerated, if you could. Okay, so when you first pull up to the Ohio State Reformatory, it's going to look absolutely nothing like you think a prison is supposed to look like. Um, it looks more like a castle, and that was on purpose. The architect, his name was Levi Schofield. He was from Cleveland, really fancy, fancy sort of guy. Um, but he wanted the building to be beautiful so that these young first-time offenders weren't thinking, I'm going to a place to be punished, but rather, this is a place for me to turn my life around. This and is, is that why they, they refer to it as the Ohio State Reformatory instead of a, as a penitentiary? Yeah, so um, we offered our inmates a three-step reformation process. So we offered education, religion, and a vocational skill. And so the idea was that when you got released from the reformatory, you had a set of morals from religion, you had an education, and you had a career, so you don't have to revert back to criminal behavior. Um, When you first walk into the prison, the first floor... And about half of the second floor is going to be renovated. Uh, we did all of that. We have a corrections museum, which also houses the electric chair for the entire state of Ohio. That's the original one. And then upstairs, we have a Shawshank Museum that was just newly opened as well. We have tons of stuff that we still have to add. Um, at the 25th anniversary of Shawshank, Frank Darabont uh, gifted us a whole bunch of stuff, so we have to put that in there soon. And then You'll move through the administrative quarters of the building. That's where the assistant warden, the warden, and the chaplain would have lived. You'll move through the guards' quarters, and then you open up into one of my favorite spaces, which is the chapel. And that's where all of the inmates would have worshipped on Sundays. And then you'll move into the cell blocks. Um, the so east- now you mentioned, you mentioned that uh, the warden's quarters. Uh, did the warden and his family live actually in the prison back then? Yes. Yep. Um, our very first warden, Jenkins, his daughter even got married downstairs. That was their family home. And they lived, the, every warden, assistant warden, and chaplain lived within the facility up until about 1959. Um, in 1959, Art Gladkey, he was the warden, had a heart attack downstairs. Uh, he sadly passed away, and after that, they kind of decided that having your work and home in the same space was just way too much stress for everybody. So they moved them directly across the street to a cluster of brick row houses um, named Hancock Heights. So describe for us 
the different wings of where the prisoners would be housed. Okay, so um, there are two wings. There are east and west wing. East wing, uh, the east cell block is the world's tallest freestanding cell block ever. Um, it's six tiers high, can house about 1,200 inmates. On the west side, that one was built first. It's a different construction. It's brick and mortar rather than steel. Um, but that can hold 750 inmates. There are four-man cells on the west cell block, which is a little unique. Um, those are made to hold, of course, four men in one cell. And if you didn't like the, uh, if three of you guys decided you didn't like the fourth guy, you can vote him off the island and get a new inmate. <laughs> and was there a solitary confinement uh, wing of the prison? Yes, there is. Um, originally, solitary confinement would have been down in the basement. Um, that's where our hole was located. Um, it was a hole in the ground. They sealed the top. That's your solitary confinement. And then in about the 1940s, we moved to solitary upstairs, and we currently have two tiers for a total of 40 solitary cells. Now, was there a sensory deprivation punishment as part of the reformatory? Yes. Um, when you first walk into solitary confinement, there are 10 cells on the first floor that are sensory deprivation. What do you so mean by sensory deprivation? Is it what we think it is? It's dark, you can't hear, you can't see? Yeah, so there's a big metal door that closes. You're either kept in 24 hours of light or 24 hours of dark. That's meant to um, kind of mess with you psychologically. You lose track of time. You don't know when your next meal is coming. You sleep on the floor. Your food is bread, broth, and water for the first two days. Third day is a full meal. That's loaf. All of yesterday's food blended up into a blender, poured into a bread pan, and baked. That sounds oh, delicious. Yeah, no kidding. We're, we're, so <laughs> did they ever put more than one person in the same sensory deprivation cell? Not in sensory deprivation. There would have been, um, in some cases, you could have been placed into solitary confinement with another inmate. Um the highest number that we ever had was about in 1956, there was a riot at OSR, and we had to punish 120 inmates. And so on record, we have of four to five guys spending 30 days with one another in one cell in solitary confinement. And how big were those cells? Those cells are five feet by seven feet. Now, how, many, how often do you have former prisoners show up and take the tour? Uh, surprisingly often. Um, I always like it when when former inmates come back because I think that it's a sense of closure for them. Um, it's nice for them to come back as a free man and kind of close that chapter of their life. Um, one of my favorite ones that I ever experienced was there was a man who was a former inmate and he brought his daughter and he never told his daughter about this time, you know, this chapter of his life until they had gotten there. And he's like, you know, this is kind of me opening up and telling her about it. But we always say that if you have an inmate, you always take them to their cell. So we'll drop everything and take them to their old cell. So was there ever a situation where you put two people in solitary together and there was a fight or somebody got hurt or killed? Yeah. Um, so there's one story that we have where um, there was a big guy and a little guy. And they were sent to solitary confinement because they had had previous run-ins with one another. Um, they were not getting along, so they thought, hey, we'll just throw them in. They can sort out their differences there. That's kind of generally a bad idea. Horrible <laughs> so, idea. <laughs> yeah, so big guy is stealing little guy's food. Um, you know, food is scarce in the first place. I don't know how you are when you get hungry. I know how I get when I'm hungry. I get a little touchy. So big guy is still stealing little guy's food little guy snaps kills big guy and what he does is he takes big guy's body folds it in half like a piece of paper and shoves it underneath the bunk that's only about six inches off the ground so the guards can't see unless they actually step inside the cell um they eventually found the body and they asked the little guy what happened to big guy and the little guy goes uh i don't know couldn't tell you what happened to him I, I think I was asleep. I don't know. <laughs> so how long was, was Big Guy's dead body in there before they discovered it? I don't know exactly, but from the rumors that I have heard, he was there long enough to uh, create a fragrance. Ah, all right. <laughs> now, was it true that, that uh, 
Uh, prisoners were only allowed to shower once a week. Yes, sir. They were only allowed to shower once a week, um, and they were only allowed to uh, wash their bed sheets once a month. So if you can imagine 1,200 men that are working out in the fields and out in the factories every single day only being allowed to shower once a week. Um, That goes for solitary confinement as well. Those guys are brought out once a week to shower off, make sure you don't have any um, injuries, diseases, wash up, and then you'll be put back in. Now I want to go back to where you say you take the uh, uh, the old prisoners back to their cell, and before we went on, I you know we were talking about some of the things that I have been part of at the prison, and about three years ago we took uh, country music legend, I guess for la- uh, lack of a better term, David Allen Coe back to the prison where he had been incarcerated two different times as a youth or, you know, as a young man. And we shot a music video for a remake of his song, Take This Job and uh, Shove It. And we, when we approached David about doing this, um, we were worried, you know, that he didn't, he have some misgivings about going back to some place that, you know, he had always told us was just a t- you know, terrible experience. But if you go and you look up the video, um, the scene where he's sitting in his cell uh, or sitting in a cell in the video and he's writing down the lyrics on a legal pad or a a, a spiral notepad to take this job and shove it is his actual cell. He wanted to shoot that part of the video in that cell. And he said, I mean, it was kind of a surreal moment where he, he sat down there on the bunk and, uh, and just kind of reflected for a little bit. And he, and he wrote, you know, along with the, the, the feed, uh, the playback for the video, the, uh, the lyrics down as we were, as we were playing it back for the video. And it just was, it was such a surreal experience to see a guy who some of his formative years were spent in this place. And he had, he never had anything good. I mean, he, he basically said you were uh, fighting for your life every day. I mean, he, he remembered the first time he walked into, he said they would bring you in through the mess hall or through the cafeteria or whatever, so that everybody could get a good look at you as they brought you in. And he said, he learned that, uh, um, you didn't want to look very pretty for the other inmates. And he said that's why he's covered in tattoos. And he said they'd go to the extent where you'd mark their face up to make them, you know, less, less attractive. A- less attractive. Um, so it was, you know, it was really, uh, you know, I can imagine, you know, you, you having old, you know, inmates come back. Just from the experience I had, we had with him, and how much of an impact it had on his life, and you know he. But that's how he became a musician, though he joined the band that they had at the prison. You know, they had that outlet for him, and and so that's how he he was able to uh, escape some of the day to day horrors he called them at the prison, and in fact his whole first album that he released called Penitentiary Blues, he wrote most of it at the Mansfield Reform at the at the Ohio State Reformatory. So that's pretty cool that his, yeah. his whole life came full circle. Came, it kind of came full circle and, and came back to that. So Elena, um, cool history about the, the Reformatory. Um, obviously a very violent place. People met their demise there. Can you tell us some of the well-known tragedies that happened at the prison where people lost their lives. Yeah, so um, one of the most famous stories um, is an inmate. His name was uh, Lockhart, and he mentally could not handle prison. Um, From the research that I've done, he needed a sponsor to be released from prison, and he just couldn't find it. He was only 22, and he didn't have any family that was willing to sponsor him. There was nobody out in the community that wanted to sponsor him either. So he, he unfortunately lost hope in himself and he, um, stole turpentine from the mattress factory, went back to his cell, 
doused himself in that turpentine and lit a match. He lit himself on fire in his cell. Uh, he perished in that fire, and like I said earlier, he was only 22 years, 22 years old. Now, was that um, mattress factory one of the OPI type factories that they had for the prisoners to work in? Yes. Okay. Yep. We had a lot of those um, out back. We had mattress factory, shoe factory, tailor shop, uh, woodworking, all sorts of different things back there. Okay. So even today, uh, having taken the tour, there's a plaque that commemorates that tragedy? Yes. Um, we put the plaque on the cell mostly just because that's one of the most famous deaths that we have, at least in the cell block. Um, but we also put a plaque on it because a lot of people want to ghost hunt in that particular cell. And it's a lot easier <laughs> to look at a plaque than having to count 13 cells all the way down. So do you have any interesting stories about that particular cell? Um, some people, when they go inside, they say that they can feel an intense heat. Some people say that they can smell the smell of burning flesh. Um, usually on my tours, if people say that they smell that, I give them a funny look because why they know what that smells like, I don't know why. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. You're confessing something to me, but, um... I have also heard of people that take pictures in the cell and they will see a mist or a dark shadow in the corner. I've had people that go into the cell and their flashlight will go on, like on their phone, just turn on for no reason. Um, But my very favorite one is somebody took a picture in Lockhart's cell and there's a small mirror up on the wall and you can see the face of a man in that mirror, which is kind of cool. Yeah. No. So have you had any personal experiences with this? I mean, you're in there all the time. Have you ever mm-hmm. kind of got that, uh, you know, that sort of tingly feeling like there's something there? Yeah. Um, I don't really go into that cell once it gets dark outside. But when I'm locking down the building, I have to check all 600 cells to make sure that nobody's left behind. And I can say for certain, every cell feels normal until you get to that one. And then I, I get real freaked out, and the rest of the 600 cells go very, very quickly for me. <laughs> <laughs> trying to beat the land speed record. So what other kind of tragedies that uh, are, are famous for the reformatory? Um, so our warden from 1935 to 1959, Art Gladke, he had a heart attack downstairs. He was pretty much dead on the scene. Um, That particular room is part of the Corrections Museum right now. Uh, So if you go in and you see a room that has a big, ornate fireplace in it, that's the room where he had his heart attack. Upstairs um, in the warden's quarters, his wife, on November 5th of 1950, had an accident in the closet. She was reaching for a jewelry box and didn't realize that her husband's service firearm was on the top. It fell, discharged through her left side, and she didn't pass away on site, but she did pass away about two days later at Mansfield General Hospital as a result of her injuries. Has there been any any reports or anything supernatural regarding that? Yeah, some people say that um, upstairs in her bedroom, you can smell rose perfume. She was a real fan of rose. Um, I've smelled it once or twice. Um, it's very, very strange. It kind of comes and goes and it'll always be when nobody else is around, I'm locking up the building or I'm opening the building when people haven't been in the area for, you know, eight plus hours. Um, some people say that they can see her walking down the hallways. We have one woman who, um, works with our paranormal program and she was viewing the old family home movies that her son had donated to us and the, her whole office started to smell like roses so she got out her dowsing rods and she was helen are you here yeah are you watching the movies yeah and she said I, from what the communication they had um came out as is that helen was just excited to see her boys again because she hadn't seen them for you know 50 years <laughs> so it's kind of sweet now were you um they just had the uh anniversary the was the 30th anniversary of Shawshank being filmed. 
mm-hmm. are being released. Uh, and I'm assuming you were part of those festivities? Yes, yes I was. Okay, now, there were some of the actors that filmed a lot of the movie that, you know, most of the movie took place at the, at the, uh, at the prison. Did any of them have any stories or any experience, anything that they related to you guys, maybe even off the record a little bit about, um, that something, cause, because I, I was an extra in Shawshank way back in the, way back in the day and the prison, um, you know, it's way before you were even born, but the prison was a lot different back then when we were going to the movie set. Um, there was, there was nothing clean. I mean, they cleaned up a little bit of the part to shoot a couple of the uh, cell block scenes, but you really walk through a creepy, creepy, dark place to get out into the prison yard, which is where we filmed some of the scenes that I was involved in. So, um, I just wondered if any of those guys that were there for a lot longer than I was had any kind of experience, uh, you know, that was, they thought maybe a little strange or supernatural. Um, none of the actors ever mentioned anything specific, but it is a very um, common thing for the actors to say, I didn't want to spend a lot of time in there. It creeps me out. I'm not going back down because, you know, we, we offer them, we offer them, you know, hey, do you want to go down to the basement? Hey, do you want to see the West Attic? Do you want to ghost hunt at night? A lot of them are, nope, I'm fine. I think I'm just going to go back to the hotel. <laughs> well, I remember this, this one guy, this one younger guy that was in with us, he like disappeared and um, he comes back about an hour later. And, you know, we all had the, uh, you know, we were all in costume as prisoners. And he had, he was wearing a jean jacket, which some of the prisoners had. And he opens up his jean jacket and he had snuck into the prison and found the records room and found his book in folder with his mugshot. And he, because apparently when they left and moved stuff to the new prison, they just, and I'm like, you have a lot of guts to to sneak back into this place after you're already out. So he had been it. So he had been a prisoner, and at that time the prison had only been closed down for three or four years or something. So he found his mugshot and his file and everything just laying in the laying in the office. And I mean, it was scary enough just to walk through there. I can't imagine going down the hallways and in an office and. Well, it's almost still. like instead of breaking out of prison, he's, yeah, he's breaking just in. trying to break back in. <laughs> so in terms of, of other tragedies, um, was there situations where more than one prisoner would have lost their life at one time in like a mass tragedy type thing? Yeah, um, there was a big accident over on the west cell block. Um, there's a scaffolding that's currently in the back of the cell block right now, but that scaffolding would travel every year from one side to the next, and the inmates used to paint, um, paint the cell block, and it was kind of terrible because once you get done to the end, it's time to paint again. So um, my grandmother, her office was on the west cell block. Her office was a cell um, on the third tier, second one in. So her office was in a cell around all the prisoners. Yes, it is one of the only times that I've ever heard of where they move a case manager inside the cell block with the inmates. So she, I can, you know, you can still go to her cell and she, she painted stenciling up in the, (laughs) up on the top to make it feel a little bit less like a cell. They pulled out the (laughs) toilet, pulled out the sink, the bunks, shoved a desk in there and said, here's your office, Judy. (laughs) So (laughs) she loved it though. She really did. She says it's the best thing that ever happened to her. Wow. Yeah. She's more of a woman than me. (laughs) <laughs> so tell us about the scaffolding. I mean, having been having been in there and and, and seen how high those yeah. those cells are. I mean, you're talking six stories, and you look up, and if anybody has a little bit of vertigo or scared of heights, I'm telling you, it. I wouldn't even go up and walk the railing of the top. I I, I wouldn't even do that. So I couldn't imagine saying, "Okay, you're going to go up on the scaffolding." So tell us what happened. 
So she, that particular day, she was not in her office. Her friend Nancy had a dental appointment. And so she had to uh, take care of her her job in Central Guard. And Central Guard is where all of the... Um, all of the levers and the things for the prison are located. It's pretty much like the command center. Well, she she was doing her business, answering phone calls, and she heard this really loud crash. She didn't really know what it was, but she kind of brushed it off Well, thought maybe there's a disturbance. The guys will get it put down, whatever. Her boss, Norm, came in to the office, and he was completely covered in blood. And she kind of knew that this was a lot more serious than she had initially thought it was. And so she asked Norm what had happened. He said that scaffolding fell. And they don't know what caused it to fall. It just just collapsed. And that there were about 10 guys on the scaffolding. About four of them were already dead on the bottom of the cell block. And the rest of them were hanging on. And they didn't know how long they could hang on for. So it was her job to call call for an ambulance call for EMTs, but, I mean, even to this day, it bothers her so much just because you can't, you know, bring in a mass amount of people into a maximum security prison like that. So she had to let one person in and one person out at a time. My grandfather was still working um, at the time, and he was in the cell block, and he says that that there was nothing they could do. They just tried to tried to help out the guys as best as they could, but a lot of them just couldn't hang on. And they fell from the cell block, and about, I think, nine of them lost their life. Nobody survived. When you say hanging on, you mean hanging on for life or hanging on to, like, dangling? Just dangling. Dangling from the, from the, from the scaffolding. Because it had, the way that it had collapsed was the, the couple bottom mm-hmm. tiers of the scaffolding had collapsed down, and it was tilted. Cool. So how many stories <clears throat> up were they, do you know? Probably six stories. Six, yeah. Oof. Oh my gosh, yeah. I can't even imagine hanging for your life from that scaffolding. Because it, I mean, having been in there and looked up, if you fall, you're not surviving that. You're falling right on. There's concrete. no soft place to land. No, unless it's on somebody else. <laughs> so, yeah. um, so all those, uh, all those prisoners died then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, none of them survived. Um, and because of the security protocol. They couldn't just rush people in there to save them. They had Correct. to. Okay. Yeah, because the only, at least at the Ohio State Reformatory, your only entry point and exit point is through the west gate, which is um, around the side of the building by the yard. And that west gate, since it is by the yard, if you were to open it for a long period of time, all the inmates that are in the factories are going to try to rush that west gate. So you have to very tactically open it and close it, you know, in, in very quick bursts. So any anything stories-wise paranormal about, uh, about that tragic death? Some people say that they can hear the scaffolding fall um, if they're there at night. Um, they'll just be walking the cell block and you'll hear a large crash and you'll go to see if the scaffolding's still there and it's still there. Um, I have never heard scaffolding, you know, fall or any noises related to that. But I've, I have heard kind of like a hustle and bustle, like a lot of footsteps all at the same time. You know, almost like, at least what I imagine is, is a lot of people going to try to help all at the same time. And, and then it'll end. And you've actually heard that yourself. Yes. Wow. Yeah. yeah um, that happens kind of once in a blue moon but when it does it's it's pretty frightening you know because yeah. what you, you don't know if they're they're hustling home. and bustling to try to help somebody or are they hustling bustling to chase you <laughs> i don't know if you ever thought from that yeah. perspective oh well now great Sounds now she like will well now i played in that scene yeah you know, now, now she's gonna be terrified <laughs> sorry you froze oh you did too so oh Okay. Um, Bad connection. So you you think about it when people talk about like on these ghost hunting shows and stuff like that, a particular house where a singular tragedy happened, and because of you know I guess you know the paranormal 
and tragedies and loss of life kind of go hand in hand. I can't imagine a facility like that where uh, multiple, multiple people have, have died under extreme circumstances. I'm sorry, you froze again. So we were just talking about how you, you know, haunted houses and stuff like that. You know, you have one person died tragically and, and that tragedy will stay with a residence for years and years and years. It's hard to wrap your mind around a facility like the old reformatory where many people have died under incredibly tragic situations and the amount of energy that probably is contained within the walls of that of, of that prison and, and, and how it interacts with other energy or people coming in from the outside. Um, any other really uh, interesting stories you want to share with us today for our listeners? Um, in solitary confinement, there was a guard that was murdered by another inmate. There, um, there's only been, there's only been two guards at least that I know of in my in my research and my records that have died in the in the line of duty or died violently by by inmates. One of them was Frank Hanger. He was doing his bed checks in solitary confinement. Um, and from the records that I have read, this inmate had figured out a way to fix his cell so the door would close but it wouldn't lock. He heard footsteps coming around the corner, so he got out of his cell, broke a um, leg off of a bunk, a metal metal leg off of a bunk, climbed up onto a uh, clothes rack, waited for Frank to come around the corner, and then bludgeoned him over the top of the head. Frank was pretty much dead on the scene, but all the inmates said that he just kind of kept going until there was there wasn't much of Frank left. Oh. The other death that I know of of a, of a, a garden line of duty is the Mad Dog Murders. I don't know if that's necessarily a guard in the line of duty, but um, there were two inmates that were paroled from the reformatory. They were buddies in prison. They met down down in Columbus, and they decided that they were going to come back to Mansfield and get revenge on one specific guard. When they came up, they got drunk, couldn't figure out which house was his, and stumbled upon the superintendent of the honors farm, and they took him his wife and his daughter out to a cornfield off of Fleming Falls Road and shot them all dead. There was about a four-week crime spree that left about eight people dead and ended in a shootout at the Ohio-Indiana line. And what I think is kind of spooky about that whole thing is that John West was killed in the shootout. Robert Daniels was taken into custody, taken down to Ohio Penn, and put on death row. He was executed in the electric chair. And that electric chair is now back at the Ohio State Reformatory where him and John West met and only about 100 yards from his crime. Wow, old Smokey. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so um, what is the uh, scariest thing that has happened to you in the prison? Oh, um... The scariest thing that ever happened to me in the prison, I got, I got my hair pulled down in the basement. Um, and it was in the daytime. Um, I was guiding a tour group on a Beyond the Bars tour. So the Beyond the Bars tour is a little bit different because we go to areas of the prison that aren't open to the public. So we'll head into the West Attic, the guard tower, down to the basement. And um, I was down there, and it was about – this was actually like last March – and I was talking to my group, doing my script, and I felt somebody touch my shoulder. So I looked behind me, and nobody was there. I thought, well, maybe I'm close to the wall. Maybe I got caught on the brick or whatever. So I reached behind me, and I wasn't anywhere close to the wall. So I thought, oh, that's kind of weird. So I went upstairs, did my thing, didn't think anything of it. About two weeks later, I'm downstairs again, leading my tour group, and I'm telling that story. And just as I say, well, I'm not anywhere close to the wall, I get my hair pulled. And it was right in the back of my head. And it wasn't that I got caught on anything. Because if you get caught on something, you can lean forward and you can feel it pull. Mm -hmm. This was a yank on the back of my head. Like if you've ever had brothers, 
or like <laughs> they do that for you. And it was so hard it pulled my head back. And I looked at my tour group and I had no idea what I was talking about or what I was supposed to be talking about next. And so I was like, okay, we're going to go upstairs now. <laughs> so we just kind of buffalo shuffled our way out of there. And so I did you did you tell the group at the time what had happened? Yeah. Because I, I mean, I went completely blank and people had, you know, they saw that my head went backwards and I even had a woman go, are you okay? Did something happen? Are you all right? It's like, well, I just got my hair pulled, so we're going to move upstairs now. How how bad did they freak out? Bad. I mean, bad. I think it would be a stampede. <clears throat> yeah, it was a mad scramble to get upstairs. Oh, I bet it was. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, have you... Uh... Have you seen anything that, in particular, that may, really made you scratch your head, or, or? Uh... Yeah, um, the one thing that I saw that freaked me out really bad is I saw somebody in a closet once. Um, there's a certain closet upstairs in the guards' quarters, and um, my father's a tour guide there, and my father, um worked in law enforcement for you know, 34 years. Nothing really freaks him out. And he thinks that the whole ghost thing's a bunch of hocus pocus. Well, uh, I took him upstairs when I was, this is funny, I was training my father for a job. And uh, <laughs> I took him upstairs. I was like, hey, Dad, this is this is kind of freaky. What do you think? So I walked into the closet, and he got goosebumps all up his back and tingled into the back of his neck and on top of his head. He's like, I'm out. I'm done. Nope. I don't like that. Well, later on, uh, we went we went to take some guests up from Tennessee. They said, you know, hey, can you can you take us somewhere that's really spooky? Like, yeah, check out the closet. So we went inside, and as the family left, there was a boy who stayed behind, and him and I were just kind of talking. And both of us glanced into the closet, and there's a tall man, bald, and he was wearing. It almost kind of looked like he was wearing a suit without the jacket. So he had dress pants, and he had a dress shirt, and then a vest. But he was bald, and that was what was really weird. Usually you can't see that much detail. And I kind of looked and looked back at the kid, and as I looked back at him, he's about my age, about 20, and he had tears going down his face. He was like, did you see that? I was like, yeah, you know, that kind of happens, which is a telltale sign that I work there. <laughs> so we, you know, he ran back to his family, and I told Dad about it. And um, I've asked other employees, and they, it's a very common, common thing to see a man standing in the closet. Have you guys tried to research who that could be? Um, I've tried, um, but it's hard to tell. Those quarters were used for the guards, so if they were single or lived too far away, they could rent them out whenever they wanted to. Um, but guards were always coming and going, so it's hard to find a record on that. Now, what's the, um, you know, I'm sure you guys all talk amongst yourselves, the tour guides and other employees there. So what what is the craziest thing that's happened to somebody? Because I've heard, I've talked to, to a tour guide there that told me some crazy, crazy stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm curious as to uh, what you've heard as far as like just something that that if it happened to you you might think ah, maybe I better not come back yeah um I like that no hesitation yeah <laughs> <laughs> I have heard a lot of different things I've heard of people that claim that they get dragged across a cell block I don't Ooh. I don't think that's true um there's there's a very clear difference between somebody that's making it up and somebody that actually has it happened to them. There's this very weird reaction that a lot of people have where they laugh about it. It's kind of like, Oh, that was really weird. And I'm never coming back. Um, the weirdest one that I have, the craziest thing that I ever heard that would definitely make me never come back is, um, up in the West attic. The West attic is on the top of the West cell block. There's absolutely no natural light. When you turn off the lights, it's pitch black in there. And I heard a story that a guy was standing up there with his brother. They were doing a ghost hunt. And in the dark, they saw 
what he described to me was it was a figure of a person, but it looked like there was elect like it was made of electricity. So it was glowing, and you could see light moving through this man. And the way that he walked is he would take a couple steps and then kind of burst forward and take a couple more steps burst backwards. And they, he did these bursts until he just eventually disappeared. And if I saw that, I'd be out. But um, <laughs> the other story that I have heard um, by a tour guide that I trust very, very much was um, that he said he saw the ghost of a little boy on the third floor with a ball. And I don't do ghosts of kids. If if it's a ghost of a kid, I'm out. And he said that he that a ball rolled across the floor. This little boy ran out, grabbed the ball, looked at the tour guide. He said, do you need help finding your parents? And the little kid shook his head and then ran off. And it's freaky because the third floor um, scares me really bad. There's only two places in the prison that freak me out, and it's solitary confinement in the third floor. And um, personally, my opinion and a lot of the uh, opinions of the tour guides is that whatever is on the third floor is not human and was never human. Um, And I don't know if you've ever watched ghost shows or whatever, but they say that demonic presences project themselves as children to gain your trust. And so uh, that, that scares me. (laughs) <laughs> I don't like that at all. Oh, yeah, um, that's very terrifying. I had a personal experience with my daughter. I'm not going to tell the whole story now because that's <laughs> for a later episode. But my daughter, when she was about two and a half, three years old, this little boy kept coming to her room and trying to convince her to go outside and play with him at night. Uh, and it was, by the way, it was winter time. And, uh, she said that uh, the little boy's name was Wind. Like Wind. It's like, okay, it wasn't like, oh, this is Billy or whatever. This <laughs> is Wind. And it was a terrifying, absolutely terrifying situation. I'm not going to go into the whole story. I'll tell you later. But, yeah, that would really freak me out because why is there um, the ghost, shall we say, of a little of a little boy in the Mansfield State mm-hmm. Reformatory? Right. That would really, that would be really freak me out. Yeah. So let me ask you this, and I think you and I talked about this uh, the other day. Um, I was watching, I think, a Travel Channel, Destination America, one of those. There was a a story from Ohio. Um, This lady from Cincinnati had came up uh, to the reformatory to take a tour, ghost hunt thing, and she saw a black figure crouch down in one of the cells and took a picture of it, freaked her out, and she drove back home. And that figure followed her, or somehow it attached itself to her, and at night kept showing up to her house, and it ended up terrorizing her family. Uh, she believes it killed her dog, things like that. Um, and I think you shared with me a little bit about something like that. Uh, can you tell us about it? Yeah, so um, I during the first couple months that I was employed, um, I was hired in April, and I started my first day on May 1st. And on, this is how scared I was, I, I remember the date. May 15th, I was up on the third floor, and I saw, have you ever seen Slender Man? Yes. yes. Okay, it looked like Slender Man. Um, it was real tall kind of gangly uh, looking I had real long fingers I saw that freaked myself out did the rest of my day whatever I went home that night and I just sacked out of my bed I was so tired and I jolted awake at three o'clock in the morning and I looked in the corner of my room and I saw a black figure standing there and I yeah <laughs> you know, <laughs> fight or flight I froze took the third option I looked at it and I scrambled and turned on my light and when I turned on my light it was gone this continued every single night until about gosh 
till about September. Every single night I would wake up at 3 o'clock, sometimes at 3.30, um, and see that person standing in the corner of my room. I never told anybody about this. I live with my parents. I never told my mom and dad. Just thought, you know, maybe I'm just freaking myself out. You know, it's just getting in my head. I work at a haunted prison, whatever. Well, I didn't take it seriously until I was doing a tour in August with, uh, it's called America in Bloom. They go around and they judge other people's, you know, different towns, flower arrangements. And I was doing the tour and this woman came up to me and she had been acting really strange the entire tour. She was just brushing her shoulders, being real kind of skittish. And she asked me about the paranormal program. And I said, well, I'm not really supposed to talk about it during the daytime. But, you know, in my opinion, I think it's haunted. And she looked at me and she goes, they know you. And I said, me? She goes, yeah, they know you. Do you ever see somebody in the corner of your room at night? And I said, yeah, I don't talk about that. And she goes, oh, I'm sorry. I'm a psychic. I should have told you that. And I said, yeah, you should have told me that. About shaved off five years of my life. You freaked me out really bad. And she goes, she goes, no, but in all honesty, there's somebody that stands in the corner of your room every single night and watches you sleep. Do you ever see him? I said, yeah, I see him sometimes. And she said, you need to take this very seriously. When you leave the reformatory, you're going to think that I'm crazy, but tell them to stay there. And I said, okay, well, what do I do? And she said, well, there's really nothing you can do now. Just wait it out. I said, okay. So I came home and I told my mom. I said, you know, this crazy lady at the reformatory told me that this, you know, thing follows me home at night. And she goes, well, do you see it? I said, yeah, I see it. I, I don't know. I just think that it's weird dreams or whatever. And my mom freaked out. And I wasn't home at the time. And I came back and all my stuff was wet. I was like, what? what is, why is my bed, why are my bed sheets wet? My mom had gone in with salt water and <laughs> salt watered my entire room trying to get this entity out. And I mean, he, he came back. He never moved from his spot, but he lost track of me when I went to school. I was going to school in Columbus at the time. And I think that I like to imagine that he showed up, but I wasn't there. And <laughs> just kind of eventually got the got the gist. Yep. And, and that's how most women avoid Jerry. That's, I was going to say, all you, all you had to do is ask Jerry to, is to Jerry. leave. So, the difference is I find you eventually. Yeah. Oh, geez. Thanks, Thanks for that. So, so going back, so, you know, so this lady that, that we saw on TV had a similar experience. You're not privy to this, but uh, we had an episode last week. We were roundtabling some issues, and one of the things that came up was the 3 a.m., is that 3 a.m. is a is a magical hour that, uh, from my research, I woke up every night for 15 years at 3 a.m. Um, I never woke or up. Or were you just going to bed at 3 a.m.? <laughs> it didn't matter what time I went to bed. Years. At 3 a.m., I was I, the witching hour. So, you know, I never woke up at 2.50, 2.58, 2.59. It was always 3 a.m., 301, 302, 303. Now keep in mind, I don't know that my clock was, you know, set with the, uh, you know, the clock in England, so that you know exactly what time 3 a.m. is. But in that area, I always woke up for 15 years, and it drove me nuts. And so I did some research, and and my research tells me that 3 a.m. is is the witching hour. It's a magical time when the veil between our world and the paranormal, the supernatural, is at its thinnest. And that is the time that we can see things from a different dimension or paranormal things or entities. And also people who are more attuned to the supernatural, uh, we're basically, our bodies can feel that energy, whereas other people can't. And so it jolts us awake. And so, um, you know, I think probably you fall in that range of, of people like me and other people. A lot, there's lots of people out there that will tell you the exact same thing. 3 a.m. every night I seem to wake up and that is you know that is one explanation for you know why we wake up at 3 a.m. and not 4 a.m. or or whatever now our ghost hunts end at 3 a.m. and I can't I can't tell you you know for certain if this is why but I can't imagine being at the reformatory past 3 a.m. what uh, what what would it take to get you to stay at the reformatory Past 3 a.m. 
and besides not having Jerry there. But um, what would it? I'm the ghost hire. Oh, you're I the ghost hire. I'm sorry. Here. I'm sorry. But I mean, would there be a circumstance where you could be persuaded to uh, hang out there past three a.m. overtime pay? Overtime. So just <laughs> basically, money is all it's going to take. Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. No, I, uh, I, I almost did it once. Uh, we had this big uh, concert that they had at the reformatory, and it was such a long weekend, and we were working, you know, long hours. They said, "Hey, if you guys just want to." sleep upstairs in the guards quarters oh. you can okay. and uh i almost did it because i thought you know when else am i going to get the opportunity to actually stay here overnight but i'm super asthmatic and i was like yeah i really don't want to be upstairs in all that dust i probably won't sleep very well but, so, um, so what uh so what is the best other than just, you know, you experiencing it, because we can't experience what you experience, other than you just gave us all goosebumps with the uh, with the whole guy. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, but so what's some of the best evidence that you've seen that people have, you know, pictures, video, recordings, like that that the other people who don't get, get to go to the prison or whatever, that they, they could check out maybe and... Uh, become a believer in what in what you're experiencing. Yeah, the the name of our podcast is obviously from the shadows, and one of the goals I think that, that of the podcast is to help bring this stuff from out of the dark and into the light, so that, that people have a chance to judge for themselves whether or not they believe this stuff is real. Whether it's you know Sasquatch or Dogman or or the Loch Ness monster. Um, you know, the paranormal ghosts and spirits and demons and things like that. Um, what could you tell our audience out there for the person that's the skeptic? You know, like your dad originally was the skeptic. What could you tell them to say, hey, look, I really believe this stuff is real? In all honesty, I think that if you, if you come to OSR and you keep an open mind, bring a camera, bring a, fl- bring a flashlight, even if you can't do a ghost hunt, come during the daytime, do a Beyond the Bars tour, go down to the basement and tell me what you what you feel. Um, if you ask, if you pull one of the tour guides aside and you say, hey, you know, I don't have time to do a paranormal hunt, tell me your experiences, take me to places that you think are spooky, we'd be more than happy to take you there, uh, take a whole bunch of pictures and see what you find. Um, if you can't come to the reformatory, um, there are Facebook groups that are dedicated to paranormal evidence that they find at the reformatory or just go on YouTube. If you go on YouTube and you type type in Ohio State Reformatory, you know, ghost hunt, whatever, there's a lot of stuff there. Um, we also, in our paranormal program, we have these, uh, we have a different type of paranormal tour that's called a ghost walk. And those are just nighttime tours. So if you can't, you know, dedicate a whole night to ghost hunting, just come to a ghost walk and, you know, maybe pull a, pull a tour aside and kind of really hoping I can find something and just be in the reformatory when it's dark and just see what you feel. So, How do we schedule one of those? Sorry, what? <laughs> so, so if we can convince Dan Smith... To let us into the prison overnight past three a.m., can we can we count on you to uh, come along and kind of give a guided tour of all the best places to maybe experience something? Of course, one hundred percent, I'm in. With no overtime pay. With because no we're very we're on a limited budget here. The only payment I need. We only have four sponsors. At this <laughs> yeah, we have four sponsors. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm in. I'll take you ever, everywhere that you need to go. Okay. Well, well Jerry is our ghost hunter, and, and he has uh, all the appropriate equipment for ghost hunting. So, Jerry, you want to tell us what you got? I got multiple cameras, night vision, of course. I got EVP recorders. I got I got apps already installed on my computer to filter out anything and hopefully find some uh, spooky voices, responses to questions. Do you have one of those uh, thermometers that can change, that can track the temperature of the room, any changes or anything like that? Yes, I do. I got no. one. Oh. Looking. Oh, if you have an EMF detector, like a K two. I have one of those. 
those are, I have a lot of luck with those. There's, it's kind of weird. Some people have luck with certain equipment. Like, I have people that, like, swear by dowsing rods. I can't use a dowsing rod worth of crap. But if I if you give me a K2, I get responses like nobody's business, especially downstairs in the sub-basement. Now, we will have to schedule this before uh, Jerry attempts to tackle Sasquatch. You were not privy to our last uh, podcast, but uh, Jerry has decided that if we go out squatching that his plan was for us to capture Bigfoot by hand. So he may or may not try to tackle the uh, tall, dark figure. Yeah, the Slender Man. Jerry, are, are, you, are you going on record right now by saying if you see a tall, dark figure or a bald guy in a closet, you're going to try to tackle him? Now, this is a ghost hunt. My, uh, Your expertise? My, act- my actions and my um, how I do things are going to be different because... Versus an organic being. Yes, exactly. And I don't want to take the risk that if there's actually something demonic there, I will wind up getting attacked and I can't defend myself. I just, I just can't defend yourself against Bigfoot. I'm not sure what this. I just imagine you going through the ghost into the concrete wall. (laughs) That is what I was picturing. Let alone the demonic part. This is going to look just like an episode of Scooby Doo. Scooby Doo. If you put the tall, dark figure in a sleeper hold, you'll be my hero for forever. (laughs) Well, then we'd have to get Chris. Jerry will go to the tall, dark figure's house every night and stand in his corner. (laughs) (laughs) Tasting his own medicine, huh? Yeah, there you go. Well, well, Elena, on that note, um, we're going to hold you to the late night night guided tour. And uh, I'll start... uh, Start uh, greasing the wheels with Dan Smith. Greasing, yep. Yeah, line that up. Yep. Start getting lined up. Make it so. And uh, we appreciate uh, you spending some time with us and and, and sharing your uh, your knowledge and and some of your experiences. And uh, actually, I think we're all kind of looking forward to maybe going and experiencing something uh, something with you some night. Out there. Sure. And I'll tell you what, we uh, our first guest, which I think is our episode up. Jason, yes. we had a, uh, a psychic medium on. Be awesome if we could bring her. Well, if she comes, I'm not going because then I know something <laughs> has happened. I know something has happened. Elena, so. you've been a great guest, and we really appreciate uh, you taking time out today. I know you're headed back to school here shortly, and yep. so Good your, your summer touring, I guess, has come to a conclusion. Is that right? Yeah, my summer touring has come to an end. Um, I have to see exactly what school has for me, but I might be back for some weekends. Awesome. You can't get me away from OSR. So. <laughs> Anything you want to tell our, our listeners out there who might want to donate uh, to the uh, Ohio State Reformatory Preservation Fund, uh, any way they could do that uh, to keep this this really, really cool piece of history alive? Yes. Yeah. Um, if you if you want to get in contact with uh, the powers that be at the Reformatory, you can get all of that information online at mrps.org um you can send us a donation even if you just come and take a tour that's pretty much a donation to us um because we put all that money straight back into preserving the facility um you we also have a brick program if you ever wanted to do that uh you donate money to us and then we will you can engrave your name on a brick and we'll put it out front really cool yeah thank you for having me awesome and good luck in school thank you yes thank you have a good day thanks bye-bye Ladies and gentlemen, there you have it. Please visit us on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash from the shadows podcast and on our Instagram page at instagram.com forward slash from the shadows podcast and tweet us on our Twitter feed at twitter.com forward slash podcast underscore from thank you for joining us and we look forward to hearing from you all until next time never shy away from the darkness or what may be lurking in the shadows we are out
this is Jason Lewis, and I would like to thank you for tuning in and listening to the From the Shadows podcast. And now I would like to turn you back over to your host, Shane Grove, with a word from this week's sponsor. We'd like to welcome a new sponsor here at From the Shadows podcast, Twin Cedar Trucking, where owner-operator Dave Jury prides himself of hiring only the most qualified drivers to fill your over-the-road transportation needs. So give... What's that, Judge? Bennett. Mason? Are you serious? Okay, so give Dave Jury a call in a couple of weeks for all of your agricultural trucking needs. Hopefully he'll have all his uh, drivers straightened out by then. Thank you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.